And I'm happy to be studying Genesis 27 with you this morning. Most of Genesis 27, we're not going to finish the whole thing. Some, the end of it is going to be tacked on to chapter 28 next week. But the title of the sermon is Dysfunctional Family Drama. And uh, how many of you come from a dysfunctional family? I'll give you a hint. Raise your hand. You do. <laughs> you do. Mary Carr said, I think a dysfunctional family is any family with more than one person in it. She's right. Heck, you don't even need more than one person. <clears throat> George Burns said, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. <laughs> Emo Phillips said, when I was 10, my family moved to Downers Grove, Illinois. When I was 12, I found them. Sam Levinson said, insanity is hereditary. You get it from your children. <laughs> Friedrich Nietzsche said, family love is messy, clinging, and of an annoying and repetitive pattern like bad wallpaper. Louis Grizzard said, I grew up in a very large family in a very small house. I never slept alone until after I was married. And this one was anonymous. Says, they said, I saw a store that had a sign that reads, We treat you like family. Yep, not going in there. <laughs> now, hopefully we can have a sense of humor about the dysfunctions of life and the trials that come with living in families full of sinful people. But we also know that living in dysfunctional families can teach us how to love the way that God does unconditionally. And this morning we're going to study a series of events stemming from the sinful choices of a dysfunctional family that God still used to work out his good plans despite all their best efforts. And we're going to start in Genesis 27 verses 1 through 4. It says, when Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could not see, he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Look, I am old and do not know the day of my death. So now take your hunting gear, your quiver and bow, and go out in the field to hunt some game for me. Then make me a delicious meal that I love and bring it to me to eat so that I can bless you before I die. Now this chapter starts off as a seemingly innocent story about an elder, elderly father wanting to bless his firstborn son. But don't be fooled. Most of you are probably going to be familiar with the story that we study today about Jacob and Rebekah and Isaac and Esau. But my instincts tell me that most Christians will read it and view Jacob and Rebekah as the bad guys and Isaac and Esau as the victims of the story. But I think by the end of the message, you'll realize that that's not really the case. This is a story much like our own, full of broken people making selfish decisions. And that actually started with Isaac. See, Isaac's not innocent here. The only way he could be considered innocent if he was, is if he was completely unaware of what God had clearly told Rebekah many years before that we read back in Genesis 25, verse 23, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, 
And one people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And I don't think it's the case that Isaac didn't know what God had said. That is a very far-fetched idea, and especially given Isaac's response later on after his plan doesn't go as he intends. Rather, Isaac set out to work against God's plan. He thought he was going to pull one over on God. Well, Kent Hughes said this. He said, Isaac was willing to ignore God's word and the desires of his wife and his elect son, who now had the birthright, in order to bless his immoral freebooting son. Isaac thus tossed a relational torch into the tents of his family. And because of his sin, no one would do well. Neither he, nor Rebekah, nor Isaac, nor Esau. There are no heroes in this story. Only sinners. And old Isaac was chief. You see, Isaac was not responsible for Rebekah and Jacob's deceit. They also lacked faith and righteousness. Nor was he responsible for Esau's disregard for his birthright. Or his other plethora of bad choices that he made in life. We shouldn't look at this story as God rewarding Jacob and Rebekah's lies. That's not what it is. It is simply God fulfilling his plans through a bunch of sinful people making a bunch of sinful choices. And why does he have to do that? Because that's all he has to work with, guys. That's all there is. And it's a miracle that he does it. God accomplishing his plans in this world is like me giving you a car that's been wrecked and run through the car crusher and saying, here, drive this across Africa. To do that would be a miracle, but I'm telling you, it's not even as much of a miracle as God using people like us to accomplish his plans in this world. Like I said, Isaac's not responsible for his other family members' lack of faith and integrity, but he is the leader of the family, and this whole set of dominoes started to fall because of his willing work against God's decree. Likewise, we are not responsible for other people's sins. We're not. But we are responsible when we drag other people toward sin. We are responsible when we lead others into temptation. The Bible teaches that so clearly. Matthew 18, 6 says, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And Romans 14.21 says, It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. And I think this is also reflected in God's words to the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 33 verses 1 through 9. This is a very interesting passage. I like it a lot. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, When I bring the sword against a land... And the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman. And he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the trumpet, but does not heed the warning and the sword comes and takes their life, their blood will be on their own head. Since they heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not heed the warning, their blood will be on their own head. If they had heeded the warning, they would have saved themselves. But if the watchman 
sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes someone's life. That person's life will be taken because of their sin, but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the people of Israel, so hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you wicked person, you will surely die. And you do not speak out to dissuade them from their ways. That wicked person will die for their sin. And I will hold you accountable for their blood. But if you do warn the wicked person to turn from their ways, and they do not do so, they will die for their sin, though you yourself will be saved. So what I see throughout Scripture is a truth affirmed that we are held responsible when we lead others into sin. Or as we read in Ezekiel's case, we fail to give them the opportunity to escape their sin when God has told us to intervene. Isaac didn't make anyone else sin, but he could have prevented the opportunity if he had been obedient himself. That's a pretty easy thing to relate to. And apply to our own lives. You know, I've, I've told you before how I had to learn in my life that nobody else makes me mad. Right? You can't make me mad. I choose anger, but you know what you can do? You can throw a stumbling block at me. We know, we all know that when we want to, we can push people's buttons. We can lead them into sin and temptation. And when we do that, we too are sinning. And those stumbling blocks that we throw at people can be all kinds of things. It can be the words we say, the tones we use when we say them, the facial expressions, the clothes we wear, the way we do business, all kinds of things. We can lure people into anger. We could bait people into greed or wasteful spending. You should buy that. Dude, I don't have the money. Oh, come on. So what? You only live once. You deserve it. You know, there's all kinds of things we could do. We can present lustful traps for people by the way that we dress or conduct ourselves around the opposite sex. Our culture wants to think that you should be able to wear anything you want and not have any responsibility for the thoughts or temptations of others. But that is not a biblical, a Christian worldview. As Christians, we should protect. Right? We protect the name of Christ by the way that we do business, by the way that we live, by the way that we dress in a way that wouldn't bring shame to Him. We protect ourselves from being targeted and being drawn into situations of temptation. And we protect others by not presenting them with anything especially tempting. I guess that's probably the best way to put how to apply this truth. If you love people, protect them from sin. I talked a few weeks ago about how parents are to protect their children from the Un, you know, the dangerous influences in the world, but it goes farther than that. It's not just parents. We all need to be working to protect each other. And Isaac was not doing that for his family. He didn't protect them from this situation. He led them into it. And, but another thing that I think is sad about Isaac is that he lost his spiritual zeal in his old age. You know, we, we've learned already that Isaac and Abraham had a lot in common. It seemed that they both had this roller coaster faith. But Abraham appears, I think, to have finished the race a little bit better than Isaac, maybe. And spiritually, we should only get stronger as we get older, right? I mean, that, 
That's, that's, lot, that's even logical, right? As we get older, spiritually, we get more mature, we get more bold, more zealous, we get stronger. It's not just logical, though. It's scriptural. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. And I know we have a lot of peop- older people in our church. And I don't know your heart, but can I tell you, will you hear me when I say that if your spirit is dwindling with your body, there's a problem. As you get older, please don't let your spiritual zeal fade away. I know I can't speak from experience, but I can speak from Scripture, so I could throw it back at you and say, well, okay, you show me where the Bible says it's okay to let our spiritual zeal fade away and our our heart for the lost to fade away with the strength of our muscles. We might lose the vision in our eyes, but we shouldn't lose the vision in our hearts. We might lose the pep in our step, but we shouldn't lose the pep in our prayers. Amen? I think it's, it's sad. I'll just, it's sad to see brothers and sisters in Christ get to later stages in life and, and kind of give up. Stop trying. We've all seen it happen. And I'm not talking about, like, yeah, there are situations where certain conditions and ailments will just take over people's, not just their bodies, but their minds, right? So we're not talking about that. I'm talking about where we're ta- believers with a history of passion and church involvement and service who just get to a point where they just, they just stop trying. You know, church attendance falls away for no other reason than lack of effort. Seeing their life as a mission field gives way to seeing their life as a prison of old age. They go from being cheery and bright and encouraging to bitter and belligerent. You know how some people reach an age where they just stop caring what other people think, right? I think sometimes people reach an age where they stop caring what God thinks. Well, this young fella's got a lot of nerve saying things like that. Well, that's true. But let me ask you this. If not me, then who? Who's going to say some things that maybe sometimes need to be said? And it's not, it's not an effort to be disrespectful. I absolutely 100% believe in respecting your elders. We could use a lot more of that in our culture. But I don't think it's loving to turn a blind eye to spiritual apathy just because someone is up in age. That is not loving. That is not good shepherding. These sermons, they're not just for the older people to say amen to and the younger ones to go live out. It's for everybody, all of us. And so I implore you guys, the older Christians, please set a good example for the rest of us. Show us the path to follow. Show us how your body can waste away, but your spirit can go stronger and stronger and stronger. And I thank you so much for those of you who are giving us that example. Because we do have some good examples at Riviera, and I thank you for those examples. But the question that we always all have to ask is, is that me? Am I one of those? Or am I going the other direction?
Now we're going to read a huge chunk of this story. We're going to go from verses 5 through 25. So if you weren't familiar with this story before, you're about to see some more of the context of what I've been saying. Now Rebekah was listening to what Isaac said to his son Esau. So while Esau went to the field to hunt some game to bring in, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Listen, I heard your father talking with your brother Esau. He said, Bring me game and make a delicious meal for me to eat so that I can bless you in the Lord's presence before I die. Now my son, listen to me and do what I tell you. Go to the flock and bring me two choice young goats, and I will make them into a delicious meal for your father, the kind he loves. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Jacob answered Rebekah, his mother, Look, my brother Esau is a hairy man, but I'm a man with smooth skin. Suppose my father touches me, then I will be revealed to him as a deceiver and bring a curse rather than a blessing on myself. His mother said to him, Your curse be on me, my son. Just obey me and go get them for me. So he went and got the goats and brought them to his mother, and his mother made the delicious food his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best clothes of her older son Esau, which were in the house, and had her younger son Jacob wear them. She put the skins of the young goats on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. Then she handed the delicious food and the bread she had made to her son Jacob. When he came to his father, he said, My father. And he answered, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob replied to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How did you ever find it so quickly, my son? He replied, Because the Lord your God made it happen for me. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come closer so I can touch you, my son. Are you really my son Esau or not? So Jacob came closer to his father Isaac. When he touched him, he said, The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau, so he blessed him. Again, he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he replied, I am. Then he said, Bring it closer to me and let me eat some of my son's game so that I can bless you. Jacob brought it closer to him and he ate. He brought him wine and he drank. Whew, that's a lot of talking. So we started with Isaac sinning to thwart God's plan. And then we moved on to Jacob and Rebekah sinning to accomplish God's plan. And if you don't know, in the end, their plan works. But we shouldn't think that means God blessed their deceitful schemes or that they were justified because of the end result. Hughes also said, But there is a deeper absurdity here. The mother and son's belief that God would not be able to accomplish his own purposes without their help. Mother and son believed that what they were doing helped God's revealed will along, and therefore their deceitful ways were justified. They believed that unrighteous acts were appropriate and good if they aided the righteous work of God. So make no mistake, God does use His people to accomplish His plans. That's one of my points from a sermon a few weeks ago. However, sin is not justified by good intentions or end results. That is not what is happening here. 
God is not honored by Rebekah and Isaac's deceit. It lacked faith and integrity. Even though they were trying to accomplish what God had decreed would happen. Again, I'm going to go back to, to Kent Hughes and some of the things that he said. His insights on this chapter were just too good not to share this morning. But about that, he said, In today's world, many similarly believe that personal ethics are irrelevant if what you are doing helps affect the will of God. The variations of this ethical absurdity are endless. It's God's will that I provide adequately for my family. Therefore, a financial partial truth told to a client is okay. Or maybe on taxes. It's God's will that his word be preached with power. So the use of made-up illustrations and personal stories is fine if they enhance the truth of the word. God wants people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So it's okay to utilize unbelievers as cameos and entertainers to get an audience. World missions are at the very heart of God. So it's permissible to be deceptive about our intentions in order to get into a closed country. Wrong! Griffith Thomas said, Righteousness can never be laid aside. Even though our object is yet more righteousness in personal life, in home life, in church life, in endeavors to win men for Christ, in missionary enterprise, in social improvement, and in everything connected with the welfare of humanity, we must insist upon absolute righteousness, purity, and truth in our methods, or else we shall bring utter discredit on the cause of our Master and Lord. I think we can see the evidence of that in our world right now. And I believe in what they said wholeheartedly. And both, both of those men did a pretty good job at showing us a variety of applications of that last truth, that last point that I made. But each of us has to do the hard work of letting the Holy Spirit in to prick our hearts and show us how does this apply directly in our life. Are you trying to justify some sin for a good cause? Maybe in the name of peace? Hey, God calls us to be peacemakers, but not at the expense of righteousness. Or maybe it's in the name of love. Listen, biblical love does not compromise biblical truth. So if your definition of love includes compromising truth and integrity, then the way you define love is not the same way that God defines love. Or maybe it's in the name of sacrifice. Maybe you see your sin as a sacrifice that you're making for someone else. And so you tell yourself, well, I'm not being selfish. I'm doing this for others. Serve them a different way, okay? Jesus' life on earth is the, the example that you can love and serve others and accomplish God's will without resorting to sin. Can you imagine if we use the same excuses and arguments that we practice with ourselves and try to apply those to Jesus? Like trying to make an excuse for Him resorting to sin in order to save us or something like that? It's ludicrous. And who are we called to be like? 1 Peter 15, 1, 15 and 16 says, But as He who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct. How much of it? All of it. 
Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say, and say, hey, the expectation has to be that we're perfect all the time. Like, we're not going to reach that, right? We're not going to get there. But we can't sit back and try to excuse willful sins. It doesn't work. There's no excuse. It's not justified. Verses 26 through 29, Then Isaac, then his father Isaac said to him, Please come closer and kiss me, my son. So he came closer and kissed him. When Isaac smelled his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give to you from the dew of the sky and from the richness of the land an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow in homage to you. Be master over your relatives. May your mother's sons bow in homage to you. Thus, those who curse you will be cursed and those who bless you will be blessed. So you might also be wondering, well, why would Isaac even go through with this? He was clearly suspicious, right? And I, I can't answer that question with certainty, but there are commentators who point out, who, who believe that there was supposed to be witnesses for a blessing like this. But Isaac was trying to be secretive, right? This was an under-the-table arrangement. And so bringing someone else in to verify that he was speaking to Esau and not Jacob would have given him up on his schemes. And it's striking that Isaac tries to give Esau the exact blessing that God decreed would go to Jacob, that your relatives and brothers would bow down and serve you. It's sad, but it's a little funny at the same time. A little hilarious because Isaac thinks he's pulling one over on God, but here in a second he's going to realize, eh, it's actually the other way around. God wasn't about to be fooled, bamboozled, conned, duped, outfoxed, or hornswoggled. You like that one? <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess it's a hornswoggle. I guess it's a, a synonym of fooled. That's your word of the day. It wasn't going to work on God. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob and Jacob had left the presence of his father Isaac, his brother Esau arrived from his hunting. He had also made some delicious food and brought it to his father. He said to his father, let my father get up and eat some of his son's game so that you may bless me. But his father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I'm Esau, your firstborn son. Isaac began to tremble uncontrollably. Who was it then, he said, who hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it all before you came in, and I blessed him. See, Isaac realized the power of the God that he was trying to outwit. This was not a deity who could have a secret kept from him. His whole body began to understand. God knows. He sees. He hears. He decrees. And I have no power to stop him. Isaac learned an important lesson that day, similar to the one that Job learned in his own life, and which he recounted in chapter 42, saying about God, I know that you can do anything, and no one can stop you. 
Indeed, he will be blessed, Isaac said. When Esau heard his father's words, he cried out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me too, my father. But he replied, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. So he said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me twice now. He took my birthright, and look, now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, Haven't you saved a blessing for me? But Isaac answered Esau, Look, I have made him a master over you, have given him all of his relatives as his servants, and have sustained him with grain and new wine. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. And Esau wept loudly. His father Isaac answered him, Look, your dwelling place will be away from the richness of the land, away from the dew of the sky above. You will live by your sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you rebel, you will break his yoke from your neck. Now, we read this, and then it's interesting to read Hebrews eleven twenty, which says, By faith... Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. And we read that and we're like, huh? How so? In what way was Isaac practicing faith in this story? Because it seems completely the opposite. And for the most part it is. But I would argue until the very last bit. After Isaac realized who he was dealing with, he came to his senses and he accepted God's will. That's why after trembling uncontrollably and realizing what happened, he declared, no, he will be blessed. Jacob will be blessed. No more would he try to work against God. He, he finally realized that is a losing battle. And it was time for faith. And we can appreciate Isaac finally coming to his senses. We can relate to it too. We have our own stories about how we waited far too long, but eventually finally came around and came to our senses. And the beautiful truth is that it's never too late to come to your senses. At least not on this side of death, right? It is too late if you wait until the other side. But on this side, it's never too late. Maybe you're fighting with God about something. I hope you will realize that it is a losing battle. But also, if you're willing to repent, He is loving and gracious. And He is ready. And I would encourage you, though, don't wait. Right? Continuing that fight with Him is only going to hurt you. God is patient and gracious, but why put yourself through it? Right? Why not just avoid the battle altogether? We all know that it's true that there are some people out there who won't come to their senses till they come to the end of their rope. They won't soften up until they hit rock bottom. Okay? But you don't have to do it that way. You don't have to wait. You can turn to God now. I would encourage you to do that. Today we learned about a dysfunctional family full of people like ourselves. 
Are you throwing a stumbling block someone's way? Are you failing to protect someone from sin or temptation that you could be helping instead? Are you letting your spirit weaken with your muscles? Are you trying to justify some sin in the name of peace or love or sacrifice or whatever else it may be? Do you need to come to your senses this morning about obedience to the Lord? Everything this family struggled with is still with us today. Hughes also said, everyone in this family sought the blessings of God without bending the knee to God. But let's not make that same mistake. Bend your knee to God today. Don't wait another minute. Whatever it may be. Maybe it's for salvation. Maybe you're fighting God about your very soul and its eternity. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Or maybe your salvation is secured, but you're fighting God about something in the sanctification process. Let me say, you're in good company. We all do it. But it only hurts. So don't. Don't do it anymore. Offer your mind and your heart and your soul, and your strength to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for bringing us together this morning. Thank you for this, this story, Lord. And it's really, I, I, the Bible is so wonderful. And, and it's, so, it's especially wonderful when we read it correctly. God, and we shouldn't be looking at these stories like this thinking that Jacob and Rebecca's actions are glorified and that they were good. Or No, this is, this is a story about a bunch of sinful people making a bunch of sinful choices. And we can relate to that. But it's also a story about a sovereign God working out his good plans anyway. And thank you for being that God. Thank you for being the God who can take people like us. And we all know, deep down, Lord, we, we can all think about the, the darkest moments, the things that we're most ashamed from, that we most regret. Yet you will still use us to accomplish your will in this world. You will still use us to bring other people to know you. And the beauty also is that you're not done with us. Lord, we can change. And I hope we are changing. And I pray that you would help us to do it together. Help us to not forget who you are, what you've done. Lord, as we, we even were thinking about humility earlier, help us to be humble before you. To not rely on ourselves. Let's turn our eyes to you. We pray these things in Christ's holy, precious, amazing name. Amen.